Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. I'm Bob Boylan with All Songs Considered. I want to tell you about Lenny Kay. If you don't know Lenny Kay, he was my hero in 1972 when he put together one of rock music's great anthologies. It was called Nuggets. Original artifacts from the first psychedelic era, 1965 to 1968. I spent countless hours discovering regional garage-infused bands from all over the country, something none of us would have likely uncovered if it weren't for him. In many ways, that album was a spark that lit the coming punk movement. Lenny Kay played a huge role in punk as guitarist on Patti Smith's revolutionary first album, Horses. His legacy with Patty, and as a record producer, continues into the 21st century. In the mid-90s, while conducting research for the autobiography of Waylon Jennings, which he co-wrote with the country legend, Lenny Kay met Waylon's wife, the musician Jesse Coulter. That meeting planted a seed of an idea for an album that just came out. The album's called The Psalms, and on this edition of All Songs Considered, we're going to let Lenny Kay play DJ. We'll begin with the opening cut to Jesse Coulter's record, which Lenny Kay produced, and we'll also get into music by Patti Smith and Phil Spector, and we'll even hear Flying Purple People Eater somewhere down the line. We begin with Psalm 150. Thank you. 
it was simply not possible to fade that out. <laughs> I'm just going to say. Oh, right, yeah. right from the, this is a new record from Jesse Coulter, but it's been kicking around for a while. You want to tell me the story of, of this song, this album? It's really mystical how this album came to be, I must say. Uh, I was in Nashville at this point, it's probably more than 20 years ago, working with Waylon Jennings on his autobiography. And one day uh, I came into the living room and saw Jesse Coulter, his wife, uh, singing the Psalms, just had the Bible open, placing her fingers on the keys, with no conception of making a song out of them or anything but just singing them as the chords came to her. And I just watched for 20 minutes, a half an hour while she sang, and it was so transcendent, so beautiful, such a pure expression of belief. And I thought, wow, I would love to hear that on a record. And um, years later, actually, after Whalen's passing, somewhere around the middle uh, years of the early 21st century, I was speaking with Jessie on the phone, and I said, you know, there's a record I would really like to hear. And she was in New York shortly after, and I got a studio with a good piano. And we spent two afternoons over a weekend doing that, opening the Bible with no sense of forethought, wow. just playing the Psalms. Uh, I don't think we did more than one or two takes of each. Sometimes Wait. I would accompany her on guitar. Sometimes uh, she would just sing to my guitar chords. There was not a lot of forethought or rehearsal. And at the end of the weekend, I had seven and she came to New York a year later, and I got the other five that are on the record. Then I spent many years trying to figure out how to keep the intimacy of what we were listening to together without getting too smart about it. And uh, I found sympathetic musicians, Al Cooper uh, on keyboards, and Bobby Previty, the great jazz drummer, Paul Dugan on uh, a bass, uh, a harp player, Mia um, Theodoratis, some Bulgarian singers, John Jackson on the mandolin, uh, Jenny Muldaur, and made a very simple record where we illuminated these beautiful sacred poems of the Old Testament. A simple record that was about 11 years in the making. Well, more if you think about it. Well, I didn't work uh, on it every day, sure, <laughs> I oh, must sure. say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There were a couple of years when I just didn't do anything on it. Uh, I was just thinking about it. I am a uh, true Capricorn, so sometimes we climb the mountains very slowly. But I wanted it to be right. I wanted it to remain intimate and personal and to keep that moment of creation alive as, I have to say, uh, the Psalms keep that moment of creation alive. Why wouldn't it have worked just as you originally recorded it? Or... Uh, it would have worked, and perhaps someday I will uh, allow those. Uh, un but they all sounded somewhat similar. I wanted to make them a little different from each other, just texturally, so you didn't have the same piano and voice throughout. And each of the psalms have their own personalities, uh, especially uh, within biblical scholarship. They, uh, they have different areas in our spiritual development that they address. Uh, sometimes it's companionship, sometimes it's uh, enthronement, sometimes it's how to place yourself within a world that is ever-changing. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that the 
record was a journey that you had all these different lights and darks within it. If I play something uh, that happened uh, math time 40 plus years uh, ago, uh, another uh, song about uh, Jesus that's quite different, I'm going to play Patty. Okay. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton pot of thieves, wild cord of my sleeve, thick heart of stone. My sins, my own, they belong to me. Me. I want to play it all, but maybe we'll come back to it. But, and it still feels so good after all these uh, all these years to hear uh, that opening track from Forces. Uh, For me too. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Do, do you? There, there are two very different points of view of of Jesus in both of these songs, and you are on both of these songs. Do you have a feeling uh, a, a religious? You grew up. Jewish, right in the Jewish household, and yes. I don't know if you're practicing or not practicing, but is there a connection between being a musician, putting your feelings and emotion in a song, believing in a song that have that are so different from one another? Yet there you are, you you are at you add so much to both of these pieces of music. I believe there's a spiritual spirituality in music that's inescapable, and I believe when you tap into that emotion, that sense of otherness, that sense of channeling the spheres of the universe, that's a blessed thing. I, I don't really feel that the approaches that Patty and Jesse have on this record are dissimilar because what each of them embody is a personal spirituality. Uh, I believe Gloria, our version of Gloria, is about looking past the strictures of the church or the strictures of the bureaucracy that is, that grows up between us and the light, in the same way that when Jesse and I perform the Psalms, we're not really doing it within any particular sect or even religion. 
we're using the mythologies of the Old Testament to look beyond into the light. Simple as that. Hmm. Uh, as, as a practicing religious person, I practice all religions, to be honest. I've grown up Jewish, and I love those traditions. I'll find the crack in the matzah, and I'll uh, <laughs> light the Hanukkah candles, and, and, and those to me speak to me, but that doesn't mean that I devalue the traditions of any other religion. I love Christmas, and I, I love to walk into a church in Europe and feel the beautiful architecture. I love to look at the calligraphy of Islam, I, I listen to this beautiful singing of the Muzin when I'm in uh, a Middle Eastern country. To me, all religions speak to the same awe and wonder of life that is our gift. And religion, to me, tries to explain it, exalt the miracle, and take us transcendent. Uh, that's what I try to do with the Psalms, with Jesse, and uh, that's what I do each night that Patty and I are on stage. It is speaking to the same sense of the sacred within us. Let's hear just a little of this. Seen you perform this song a bunch, and one of them was uh, uh, it's 1976. It was a little club called the Cellar Door in Washington D.C. Oh yeah, Patty was really sick, but it, but it was still transcendent. It was an amazing <laughs> night, and if I remember right, John Cale came out at the on an encore. That could that be yes, possible? Yes, that is that, a real you know, memory. Okay. Took his bass, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I believe on that tour, I, we would end uh, our shows where I would leap into John's arms, which is uh, <laughs> a memory I, I, I really uh, always treasure. Uh, yeah, it's, it's great to do glory. I mean, it's the national anthem of garage rock, among anything else. And to see Patty transform it so personally uh, makes it makes it even more our own. I was thinking about the, the, that, and also the, just the the trend that moment for a player, a player like you, who is um, so entrenched in a song. Even though it's not your song, you did take ownership of the song in its own way. But I'm just thinking about, and again, it's that spirituality, it's that place when you are playing guitar, whether it be to Gloria or any other song, that you get completely lost in. Is it the is it the same kind of feeling that spirituality that you're talking about when you're in a room with Jesse Coulter when you're I, I believe when you play music in the very present tense when you perform music even when you listen to it it's like a prayer uh, you are saluting something that's grander and greater within you I'm not parochial about the types of music I like I like very dissonant crazy uh, abrasive and uh, confrontational music and I also like to be honest uh, a, a beautiful song that just wears its heart on its sleeve the Psalms have been part of our culture for 3,000 years and uh, they've been transformed to all listeners in a way 
they are the one part of the Bible that seems to truly unite the Jewish and the Christian traditions. And since the uh, Mohammedan tradition is built within that, they're all prophets. It's a great sense of continuity. I treasure the fact that uh, we were able to go back to the inspiration of King David to act as our lyricist on, on these beautiful poems. And Jesse sings from such a heartful place, a place of true belief beyond denomination that I could only respond to it in kind and help her to make a record which expresses this sense of belief in the extraordinary, in the universal, in the fact that we live in a universe that we don't understand. And hopefully in our song and in our prayer, we can get closer to giving gratitude toward the beauty that is life. I'd like to play a song that you've picked. <laughs> I'm just going to play it. It's, it. It is a song of reverence, but it's a very, very different song of reverence. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. Let's see if this works. Remember how old you might have been when you first heard this song by the Teddy Bears? I was probably 10 or 11. Uh, it's funny, listening to that song in the context of our conversation, yes. it does sound like a gospel song, <laughs> right. doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of it like that. I hadn't either, and, and, and there it was. Oh, my gosh. It's so, it's so amazing. Uh, and, and Phil Spector, uh, despite his flaws as a as a human being, perhaps certainly reached for the, uh, the cosmic in his sense of production mm -hmm. and, uh, and grasp. I mean, baby, I love you and be my baby. These are some of the most simple and beautiful love songs that have ever been, been put to, uh, to song. So uh, it's great to hear him in that context, but uh, that was one of the first, as a, as a young kid walking the streets of Brooklyn, you know, listening to the radio and finally going into Vogel's record shop on Flatbush Avenue right by church and buying my first records. It was, it was exciting to make that one of the first expressions of, of who I wanted to be in this world. <laughs> Let's hear the last of it. I love that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, I guess that's the, the one word that if you're going to ascribe the sense of, of, of salvation, that's, that's it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's beautiful. You want to pick something else from when you were little? I, I, I don't. Uh, you're, I'm, I'm going to guess uh, you're 
probably in your upper 60s. I just turned 70 last month. Wow. I am an official septuagenarian. <laughs> Is that what they call it? I, got I think That's so. what I got it's to look really forward great. to. Yeah. Uh, you want to pick something else? Mate, what was the first thing you ever bought with your own money? Well, it was 1958, and I was obsessive radio listener. And this was, despite probably some embarrassment, because you know it was was my favorite song of that summer, uh, "The Purple People Eater" by Sheb Woolley. <laughs> <laughs> Novelty mine, and mine romance. Too, That's what I'm about. <laughs> Hang on, here it comes. <laughs> Well, I saw the thing coming out of the sky. It had a one long horn and one big eye. Like a Mr. Shaking in the city. It looks like a purple people eater to me. It was a one eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. One eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. A one eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. Sure looks strange to me. One eyed. Really came down to earth and he lit in a tree. I said, Mr. Purple People Eater, don't eat me. I heard him say in a voice so gruff, I wouldn't eat you cause you're so tough. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. Sure looks strange to me. One-horned? I said, Mr. Purple People Eater, what's your line? He said, eating purple people and it sure is fine. But that's not the reason that I came to land. Oh my gosh. And and there's so many references to other songs. I mean, I think that was the fun of it if you were involved in listening to radio back in that day when these novelty songs came out cuz they it was all this great. this little communal culture thing that went on and inside jokes and all that stuff. People call them memes now, I suppose. Uh, I mean, you know, it's actually a very true song because I I I wanted to be in a rock and roll band then, (laughs) listening to that song. And, of course, I loved science fiction at the time, too, so I'm sure the interstellar uh, aspect of the Purple People Eater uh, impressed itself upon me. Purple People? (laughs) Sheb Woolley was also, for those uh, who know what the Wilhelm scream is, a scream that is uh, a man's scream that... She was in three hundred plus movies. He was uh, he was also the voice of that. Wow! Um, yeah, <laughs> he was a radio DJ, as I believe too. Yeah, yeah. Came came out of you know maybe it's time for you to make a record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like that. <laughs> I'll change the color. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where to? You want to do something a little uh, more on the serious side of life, or you want to do sure. some? Yeah, whatever uh, you like. Uh, you produced a, a, a Suzanne Vega record. Uh, that I'm sure you're proud of. And, yes, uh, quite, quite. Let me let me play the song, Luca. How's that? Okay. I think you've seen me before If you hear something 
you first heard words to this song, you first heard this, Suzanne singing this song, mm-hmm. um, and you go to you, your role in the song was uh, uh, as a producer of the music. Does the meaning of the song, does what she's trying to convey, does that come into a conversation and how the sound evolves, or, or is it, uh, maybe it's not an either or at all, but or is it a just the music calls you and tells you to, you know, use these sorts of sounds. I'm just trying to make a connection between emotion and choices made as a producer. I, I think as a producer that you try to embrace the artist with sounds that, like, frame her in a certain way. Uh, I know I tried to do that with Jesse's record. I was very careful not to be too aware of trying to manipulate the sound, but you just want to find textures that that let the song express itself. I was impressed listening to it just now because, in a, in a way, Suzanne's vocal floats over the song. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a very soft vocal. She's not really out there declaring herself. She's telling the story in a very dispassionate way. It's a song about. Uh, child who's being abused and yet what how she's delivering it you get the sense of the child's somewhat embarrassment about you know the almost that they feel at fault and the music surrounds it in a way that like pushes it forward and yet emphasizes the lines in a kind of punctuation but i have to say that a lot of times in the recording process at least in my recording process, you're not thinking about these things. You're not trying to analyze it. You're not trying to steer something in a direction. You choose musicians who you feel are empathic with what you're doing and allow them to express themselves and you know perhaps you move things here and there or you make a suggestion or two, but the process is very organic. And that's the way I like it. I, I think if you try to analyze too much of, of what you do, you, you tend to take the charm and the magic out of it. And become and, too literal, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't want to, you know, don't hit me anymore and then, you know, have a little <laughs> drum going. Yeah, right. but, but I think Suzanne's almost dispassionate delivery heightens mm-hmm. the, the intent of the song. And so the question around it is how to get a feeling of triumph because the guitar solo certainly brings you to the point that this this child who's telling this story will triumph at the end. He, he will be able to succeed beyond who he has been told he is. And, uh, and in, in a way, it's almost Suzanne's life. You know, she's like rising out of her situations and becoming, you know, the the singer through her song, becoming who she is meant to be. It's beautiful. I want to take you back somewhere. Perhaps you haven't been in a while. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, tell me. (laughs) That's the first thing you thought of when you heard that. I thought of, wow, Link Cromwell, what a career he had when that song became a mega hit. <laughs> there he was, you know, he had a million dollars in 1966, and he went and blew it, and then there was the years of, of 
you know, sorrow and drug addiction, but then he triumphed and now he's come back. <laughs> the good times were not to last. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, uh, so, tell Crazy people. Like a Fox is my weird anthem. My, my uncle was a songwriter for hire uh, and uh, he wrote many, many songs. Uh, he even had uh, a great hit, uh, Speak Softly Love, from Love Theme from The Godfather oh. and A Time for Us from uh, Romeo and Juliet, Zifarelli's Romeo and Juliet. And he wrote a protest song with Richie Adams, who was the lead singer of the Fireflies, called Crazy Like a Fox. And he searched around for someone to sing it, and he thought about his nephew in New Jersey who was just starting in bands. I was playing in a band called The Zoo. And he thought, well, maybe he could be this folk protest singer. And so I was. Let's but it's just kind of ironic yeah. because I think of the, the way that song sings itself and, yeah, it's who I am. You know, while they're working on the inside, I'm having fun on the outside. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> while they're working and saving, I'll get by without saving. Oh, yeah. I'm crazy like a fox. Oh, yeah. Crazy like a fox. Uh-huh. Ten-second fade. <laughs> and, you know, it's a, for my first time in a recording studio, but it really made me feel like I could be a musician. That I had a right to to be within this world that I so admired and so longed for. And even though it took me quite a number of years to actually become that, to be honest. Uh, it gave me my start, and I'm always grateful to my uncle Larry Cusick for thinking of me and uh, making me crazy like a fox. How old were you when you when you did that? When your uncle mm, asked I must you have been uh, I don't know 15? 18, 18, something like 18. Mm-hmm. I'd say yeah, uh, perfect age to be a folk uh, protest singer. <laughs> I believe I recorded it in 1965, uh-huh. so uh, I, I came out in March of '66. So we're just about uh, at the 50 first anniversary of it. That's insane. Did you miss the 50th completely? (laughs) Uh, Actually, I didn't quite miss the 50th because I performed at the Ponderosa Stomp. Uh, I went down there just to hang out and Dr. Wright got me up on stage because Lynn Cromwell is actually like these uh, strange forgotten rock and roll stars that he specializes in, and I, and I sang it. I actually sang it right after Barry Maguire did his set, which was a real irony since wow. Eva Destruction. Was, was a real protest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I thought, my God, there, there's a, a closure, a, a circle fulfilled. Barry Maguire had a 1965 hit in a very Dylan-esque sounding song uh, called The Eve of Destruction for those who weren't listening to AM radio in 1965. And of course, you know, about maybe three weeks later, four weeks later, Barry Maguire passed away. I didn't know that he was ill at the uh, Ponderosa Stomp, but he he didn't survive it. He maybe lasted another month. And uh, so I'm really glad I got to meet him and shake his hand and tell him how much he influenced my life unconsciously. It's beautiful. I'm going to play 
this song, which came out right around the same time you were Link Cromwell. <laughs> this is uh, also 1966, and a song that I think uh, we can all agree, like Gloria, like them's Gloria, like Van Morrison's Gloria, is just something that has now for 50-plus uh, uh, years has been a, a centerpiece of, for music. This is The Seeds. wasn't much in 1966 it was sounding like this on the radio. Do you, you remember Sky, uh, hearing Sky Saxon, hearing the seeds and this song for the first time? It was, it was kind of a, a mid-sized hit. I mean, yeah. I heard it. Uh, they were an L.A. band, and there's no way I would have not heard it if uh, living in New Jersey unless it was on the radio. But that was the great thing about the radio then is you could drive around the country tuning in. Uh, I, I went across country in 1967, uh, just driving through towns and hearing a record on the radio by some local group, going in a record store, buying it, uh, leaving it on the back shelf and watching it get warped. <laughs> but uh, there was a couple of those. Right, because there was uh, regional hits who were in those yeah, days. But it was a real explosion of, of, of what is now known as garage bands, but then it was just you know, teen, teen debut bands. Uh, people who heard the English invasion thought, yeah, we could do that too, and set up shop and wanted to be uh, the life of their local party. And I was one of those, those kids. Uh, putting it together in the Nuggets album was a great privilege for me because it was kind of paying a debt back to these bands that helped inspire me and gave me a reason to be on that stage. Uh, really one of the, you know, the, the gifts of, of, of that moment in time. Electric guitars in a hand were, were one of the ways in which you could define yourself. You could find yourself, uh, that, that yearning of desire. And it happened all over America and we're still finding great records from that time. Of, of bands who who just love to plug in and see who they might be. Do you still do that? Do you still look around for either current 
records or old records? I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty much obsessed musically. I try to learn so much. There, Of course, there's so much available now. It's kind of random what comes to you. Uh, I listen to any available radio stations I can, uh, sometimes especially the college stations where they're playing 12 records in a row, you find yourself counting back to seven to see which one you might, you know, which one tickled your ear. But there's certainly a way to hear things today that was not really possible, say, 50 years ago. I remember hearing about the San Francisco bands, the Grateful Dead, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and not having any idea what they sounded like. And that made a sense of mystery that I wanted to penetrate. I had to travel to San Francisco to see Big Brother, to see The Grateful Dead. I couldn't just hit a, a little uh, click on the keyboard and be there. Uh, I also think it gave bands time to grow and to experiment beyond trying to get out into the, the major world. It allowed people to develop at their own pace, uh, which is you know, something. But now, of course, it's great that you can put on a record and somebody halfway around the world can hear it. And all of a sudden, your your renown can grow and what you can do can grow. You can travel to a place. Who knows? It's kind of an open door at this point. Can you imagine? Uh, I'm not sure how to put this because I don't want to characterize one as better than another. But these 15-year-old Lenny K today, wherever that Lenny K is, uh, and has access and doesn't have to drive to San Francisco. I mean, that's pretty dream science fiction that w you and I lived in growing mm -hmm. up and listened to 50s and 60s AM radio. And I love the mystery that we had. I love the fact that I had to save my money to own something. And then w even if I bought it because of the record cover right. only, I was now committed sure. to it. There was a difference. But yet I see a generation of people who go out and see live music, which I didn't do as a little kid because mm -hmm. there, there wasn't that much of it. Uh, and I see people listening to so many different kinds of music and embracing so many different kinds of music. They, I think I'm answering my own question here, but would love your opinion, which is I love both of them. I love the current Well, I generation. think what it is, what it is. Okay. I mean, it's it's the field in which you, you're, you're given. You can record a record now much easier than you could then because then you had to go into a studio and you'd have money yeah, yeah you'd have really money, have money you know you had to have the time now you can in your basement try out things uh experiment with who you want to be at your leisure mm -hmm. and this is different than it was a hundred years ago when really the concept of recording was very primitive and Nobody really knew what it was about, and it was all about live music. So I believe you make music from the tools you're given. Certainly a lot of the music of the 60s and 70s was the electric guitar. Now I have to feel that the electric guitar has been explored in every conceivable way, <laughs> and I'm curious to see what the next music sounds like, uh, the music that we make digitally, the textures and the patterns and the rhythms and, and the way we disseminate it. That's the lifeline of the present. Uh, Patty always has a, a great expression. She says, progress is in the future. It's keeping up with the present. And I, I believe in that. I love old music and I probably spend far too much time listening to music from the 20th century. But that doesn't mean that I 
think it's, quote, better mm -hmm. than the music of this moment or the music that's being made five moments from now. Uh, it is the soundtrack of a time and a place and will reveal who we are as a people and as individuals. That's beautiful. Thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's totally a pleasure. It's great, you know. I just, to be part of an album like the Psalms is so special for me. It was a dream, and we didn't make it with any sense of real destination. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to put some beats under this and have, you know, a hit. It was just really a pure expression of, of art and spirituality and the fact that it has come so far to be an actual release uh, is, <laughs> is, is just a dream come true for me and also for Jesse. Yeah, it, it really shines. Thanks so much. All right, it's my pleasure. Beautiful. Be well. You too. Have a good one and good. keep the radio going. <laughs> Will do. Lenny Kay, he produced Jesse Coulter's new record called The Psalms. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. It's all songs considered. Thanks for listening. Check out all of NPR's podcasts at npr.org slash podcasts, including eight of the country's top 20 podcasts, according to PodTrack's podcast metrics. That's npr.org slash podcasts.